and we will get ourselves underway. So today we are delighted to be hearing from Dr. Christine Coy. She is the Lewis C. and Catherine J. Price Professor of European History at Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, where she has taught since 1994. She obtained her PhD from Yale University under the supervision of Lee Wandell. She is the recipient of our 2020 Friends of the Meter Center Fellowship, which of course was not held in 2020, but deferred to 2021 because of the COVID pandemic. We have been delighted to host Christine here, to welcome her to the center and its collections. And today she will be speaking to us about the project that she is completing, namely her monograph on the Dutch Reformation to be published by Cambridge University Press. So she will now introduce us to the main themes of her book, which is titled Reformation in the Low Countries, 1500 to 1600. Christine, it's all yours. Thank you, Karine, and uh, thank you also to Deborah Snyder and uh, Paul Fields, the curator of the Meter Center, uh, for hosting me this evening, uh, or this afternoon, I should say. And thank you all for coming. I appreciate you uh, uh, expressing your interest uh, in, uh, in my project. Uh, as Karine said, this is a book that's been several years in the making, uh, entitled Reformation in the Low Countries, 1500 to 1620. And um, this book is an attempt to fill a hole in the historiography, the writing about the Reformation in the Low Countries. Uh, yeah, there is no good lengthy synthesis of, uh, of the subject, that is to say, in the past, say, 50, 60 years, uh, historians of the Reformation in the Low Countries have primarily con uh, confined themselves to local studies, studies of regions or cities or particular aspects. And uh, well, frankly, for years I've been saying someone needs to write a good overview of the subject after 50 years of this incredibly rich localized research we've, been, we've had. Uh, and so I kind of elected myself to do it. Uh, and I'm making an attempt to, as I said, fill a, a lacuna in the, in the literature uh, on the subject. So hence this book, uh, which um, as said, will, uh, if all goes well, be published by Cambridge Press um, and hopefully appear next year in 2022. So. Um, Reformation in the Low Countries. Well, uh, the image I'm posting here, and I always think every Zoom talk is better with images. Um, the image I'm posting here is from a pamphlet in fifth, uh, that was published in 1567, and the title that has been given is The Burial of the Mass. And as you can see, there are two individuals here uh, in the center carrying a coffin. These two men are beggar soldiers, that is, they are rebel soldiers against the, uh, the regime of Philip II, the King of Spain. And these two rebel soldiers, they're not only political rebels, but the pamphlet implies they're also religious rebels because what are they burying? The mass inside here. They're burying the elements of the mass. Here the grave awaits. 
where uh, the home was being dug. And as you can see, um, trailing the coffin is a bunch of weeping monks and nuns. All right? So we have a very, uh, very nice anti-Catholic pamphlet, shall we say, very pro-Protestant uh, pamphlet that, or image rather that combines both the political and the um, religious aspects of the, the rebellion the revolt in, in the Netherlands. And, uh, Christine? Yes. Christine, I think we're having an issue with the sound. I've got people oh. report that they're hearing it intermittently. Can I bring oh. you my headphones and we'll try uh, and sure, see if that sure. works that's better? Fine. Hang on. Yeah, that's fine. In any case, can I, uh, the, um, the caption underneath here describes uh, the, what the, the two men are saying. We're carrying the to the grave with diligence the blasphemous invention of the Pope, that is the Mass. So the, the, the sacrament of the Mass, the central Catholic sacrament, uh, is being vilified here as an invention. All right, yeah, okay. Can everyone hear me? Yeah, where are you, Chet? I might have to, I might have to stop sharing the screen. All right, I'll go back on my end. All right, all right. Is that better? <laughs> okay, thank you. Sorry about that. <laughs> okay, let me try again. Um, So, all right, so actually I'm hoping this image, this image is from the Royal Library in Brussels, and I'm hoping that Cambridge will see fit to use this as the cover art uh, for the book. I, I, that still is to be negotiated. In any case, well, not to get all political on you, but I wanted to show you these two images because one of the things I like to do when I teach is to strive for relevance. and. Um, I came across an article uh, this spring that described the Bible that the newest U.S. President, uh, Joe, Joseph Biden, swore his oath of office on, on back in January. And that was a reams Douay Bible, or a douay Reims Bible, it's sometimes called. This is a Catholic, English Catholic Bible that was first produced in the Low Countries at the beginning of the 17th century. Um, it was produced and translated and printed in Douay, which, um, if you did not know, Douay is now part of France, but back in the 16th century, Douay was part of the Habsburg Low Countries. And in Douay, Catholic, English Catholic exiles produced an English translation of uh, the Bible of the Catholic Bible and the and, and it's known it's been known ever since as the Douay Rams and this Bible this particular copy of the Douay Rams uh, has apparently been in the Biden family for over a century so it's it's a Netherlandish Bible one could say in the sense that it was produced at least partially um, in Catholic safe havens in the Low Countries in the end of the 16th century and uh, that got me curious about other presidential Bibles and it turns out that Franklin Delano Roosevelt back when he was uh, sworn in as president in 1932 
uh, swore his oath on a Staten Bible, that is the, uh, the official Dutch or Protestant translation of, uh, of the Christian Bible that was uh, first commissioned by the Synod of Dordrecht uh, in 1619 and completed in 1637 and became a rather definitive translation uh, of the, the Protestant Bible, version of the Bible into Dutch. So I only put these up here to kind of uh, remind you that the tentacles, if you will, of the Reformation in the Low Countries um, are actually fairly deep and fairly long, and we can find echoes of it uh, in a variety of, well, sometimes unexpected places. In any case, um, this book is about the Reformation in the Low Countries, and I need to provide you with a bit of um, uh, definition. Uh, when I say Low Countries in this book, I mean the whole of the Low Countries, what now would comprise uh, the Kingdom of the Netherlands, the Kingdom of Belgium, the Grand Duchy of Luxembourg, and well, little northern bits of the French Republic. In the 16th century, the Low Countries, this whole region, by the middle of the 16th century, was under the control of uh, the Habsburg dynasty. And uh, in particular, um, let me go ahead here to, it was uh, under the control, or at least under the sovereignty of uh, Charles V, the King of Spain, and also the Holy Roman Emperor. Um, and Charles had done a lot to integrate uh, or at least assemble this collection of territories uh, under his uh, sovereignty. He had inherited the, a bunch of them from through his mother uh, and, um, or excuse me, through his, his, uh, his grandmother and then um, became um, sovereign of the Low Countries in uh, 1509. Um, and one thing that I try to point out in, in the book is that when we understand the 16th century Low Countries, we have to understand them this way. There's, 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 not, a, there's not a Belgium or, or Netherlands in existence yet. Um, it, when we're better off thinking of the context of the Reformation in the Low Countries in terms of this collection of territories. It's a composite state uh, assembled by the Habsburgs and their, their predecessors, the Dukes of Burgundy, over about a 200-year period. And as you can see uh, from the map, by mid-century, it comprises these 17 uh, regions. And also the smaller map next to it, I just wanted to show you the, the boundaries of the, the Catholic diocese of the Low Countries before 1559. Right, there were, um, uh, what, six or seven different um, uh, arch, uh, bishoprics uh, in, uh, that the Low Countries was divided into. The reason why I want to do the whole of the Low Countries is because there's been a long tradition in the historiography of uh, the Reformation in the Low Countries of either writing just about the North or just about the South. That is the, the ancestral state of what becomes the Kingdom of the Netherlands or the ancestral state of what becomes the Kingdom of Belgium. Whereas I think it's less anachronistic and much more fruitful to think of it in terms of how it was understood uh, in the 16th century as a composite whole. 
Now, all of these different territories were uh, run, uh, you know, by their own local either nobility or civic magistracies. There was a strong tradition of particularism in the Low Countries of people ruling their own affairs. And um, the Habsburgs coming in, or the Dukes of Burgundy and the Habsburgs coming in to try and create a more centralized government was a relatively new phenomenon. Uh, the political traditions of the Low Countries were very much about local sovereignty. So part of the political backdrop uh, of the Reformation in the Low Countries is the fact that there is a, a dynasty, the Habsburg dynasty, personified in the 16th century, at first by Charles V, uh, a dynasty intent on increasing its power, its ability to extract revenue from this region, uh, and a contest is starting to develop between um, um, the central powers, the, the, the Habsburg dynasty, and the local powers that have always traditionally ruled this region. So the political backdrop, and, and, and my book is very much about how the political backdrop explains in some ways the, the Reformation in the Low Countries. The political backdrop is what Hugo de Schepper once referred to as the integration and disintegration of the Habsburg Netherlandish state. That is, uh, through the, the, the trajectory of the 16th century was that the Low Countries became, if not quite unified, at least uh, assembled uh, under one uh, sovereignty, that of the Habsburg dynasty, and that the subsequent uh, wars in the second half of the 16th century uh, showed the disintegration of that Habsburg state. So this Habsburg composite state in the Netherlands was actually a fairly short duration. Um, and it's partly because the Reformation uh, it, uh, causes disruptions uh, in Habsburg central power and in its, um, uh, in its ability to aggrandize its own central authority. So we're, we're better off understanding the Low Countries as this big whole, as a political whole. Not that it was terribly unified or, or in fact, it's quite diverse linguistically and culturally and economically. Uh, in fact, there are historians who argue that a better way to understand a, a, a division in the Low Countries in the 16th century is between the maritime urban west and the more agrarian uh, rural east. And they actually, we see that pattern uh, in, in the Reformation history of the Low Countries. Uh, much more of the religious agitation takes place along the seaside regions of the Low Countries than in uh, the interior. Well, uh, one of the myths that has, I think, long been dispelled about uh, the Europe before the Reformation was the notion that the, the Catholic Church was a corrupt, decaying, unpopular institution. Um, and many, many scholars have pointed out that late medieval piety, that is um, uh, religious life in Europe, including the Netherlands, on the eve of the protests of the Reformation, the, the, late 16th, the late 15th century, the beginning of the 16th century, that that religious life was in fact quite vibrant. Uh, and that was true for the Low Countries as well. It, um, uh, there was enormous popular enthusiasm for the rituals of the church, the mechanisms of the church, uh, uh, 
that is people participated uh for example on the right here i have a picture of the the tower of the saint uh, rumble church in mechelen malin in uh, in brabant uh, which was built entirely by indulgence selling in 15 in the 1520s right uh, people buying indulgences which went to the construction of this very impressive four square tower and uh, i have an image here of uh, a print of what was called the seven sorrows of the virgin mary this was a very popular cult that uh devotional cult that developed in the uh the, the late 14th century in the low countries in which um, uh, uh, penitents and pilgrims could meditate on the seven sorrows of the virgin that is the virgin mary uh, uh experiencing the passion of christ right the seven sorrows that made up the uh the passion of Christ, his his uh, suffering and his crucifixion and his death. And so Marian devotion is very popular. Devotion to saints, people are going on pilgrimage. Uh, Mary Rubin has talked about how the court, the celebration of Corpus Christi, which was a very popular late medieval devotion, had its start in Liege, right, which was part of uh, uh, the Low Countries under a technically under a separate bishopric, but very much in its uh, sphere of influence. So my point is, and uh, and one of the points I, I set out in, in in setting up this context is that, like everywhere else in Europe, uh, the uh, devotion to the Catholic Church is is vibrant, and it's precisely because there is such devotion that that there are voices uh, that say, well, perhaps the Church could do better. Right. In other words, people are invested in the Catholic Church uh, in the beginning of the 16th century. It, uh, the Reformation, I always tell students, it doesn't arise out of indifference. It arise be, arises because people are invested. They are stakeholders in the success of the Catholic Church. And so, and as I'm sure many of you know, uh, already by the early 16th century, there are voices among scholars, among theologians, among churchmen, saying perhaps reformatio, that is uh, a, a renewal is in order. That is that the church has become uh, in some ways uh, unwieldy, unworldly, that it may have strayed into from some of its original uh, original uh, uh, values and teachings. Alternatively, people like Erasmus, the great humanist, are arguing that, that the church is allowing too much superstition Right, and I suspect Erasmus would include the, the the cult of the seven sorrows of the Virgin Mary in in that rubric. So there are voices already out there, and they've been out there for centuries, um, calling for reform in the church. Now, as we all know, um, this uh, the, in 1517, of course, Martin Luther has his uh, makes his protest against the church, and within a couple of years. Um, it it uh, gets well out of hand from the point of view of the church uh, and becomes an entirely uh, different movement. Luther's ideas are already circulating in print in the Low Countries in 1518, and they get translated into Dutch uh, by uh, 1520 as and, and not just Luther's uh, writings, but also those later of Zwingli by 1521. And so these ideas, which later generations generations will term Protestant uh, or identify as Protestant, those ideas, those pamphlets, those books are following the trade routes uh, 
uh, along the Rhine um, and through northern France that crisscross the Low Countries. This is a very commercial world. Antwerp uh, is the biggest city in the Low Countries. It is an emporium for all sorts of goods and commodities, but also for ideas. And uh, Antwerp is a big printing center, and it does not take long after uh, the initial, initial stirrings of, of controversy in the empire, in the Holy Roman Empire, for those ideas to make their way into the Low Countries. And those ideas are um, circulated among, uh, uh, among all sorts of literate classes, among urban folk, among clergy, among scholars and teachers. And um, some of Luther's ideas and Zwingli's ideas, some of these ideas have resonance. So much so that by the early 1520s already, uh, the Habsburg authorities are getting nervous because there seems to be a movement of dissent, or at least of people too uncomfortably interested uh, in reforming ideas. Um, and the Habsburg government Charles V in particular uh, uh, reacts against the spread of these ideas fairly quickly. Now, Charles, you remember he's, he's sovereign of the Low Countries as, as Duke of Burgundy. He's also Holy Roman Emperor. Uh, but in the Holy Roman Empire, Charles's hands are tied as to how he can deal with heresy. He's got all those, those you know, uh, prickly imperial princes and cities to deal with. As sovereign over the Low Countries, these are Charles's patrimonial lands, and he has a freer hand legally to try and take steps against heresy. And so already in 1522, Charles starts issuing laws uh, that, will, um, uh, uh, that will create a judicial apparatus that will try to um, punish, suppress, ideas that were deemed by the majority of right-thinking people as dangerous, right? as dangerous to, to good order. And in 1523, in fact, uh, on the Grand Place of the city of Brussels, uh, two Augustinian monks, Hendrik Voss and Johannes van den Essen, are burned to death at the stake for espousing what were, uh, what were termed Lutheran ideas. Uh, and uh, Martin Luther, in fact, got wind of this, this execution and um, almost immediately claimed Voss and van den Essen for uh, his cause. And so in retrospect, uh, these two men became the first martyrs, the first people killed for what were recognizably Protestant um, ideals. Uh, and this happens already in July of 1523. The interesting thing about this is it's, um, <clears throat> it's a nice symbolic moment because it also exemplifies just how harsh the reaction to Protestant dissent, uh, heresy, will be in the Low Countries. Um, uh, William Monter has done a study that shows that the, the by far the greatest number of people killed, judicially executed uh, for espousing uh, heretical, that is Protestant ideas, uh, the greatest number were actually in the Low Countries. And that was in part because of the, the judicial regime uh, that the Habsburgs set up. 
Uh, this regime was often referred to as uh, the Inquisition by uh, its by the people people it targeted and, and by later Dutch uh, Protestant propaganda. It wasn't technically an Inquisition so much as a very complicated, multi-layered, multifaceted uh, judicial effort that was directed by the state, but also uh, incorporated the church in its efforts to suppress again what we're seeing as very dangerous. Um, idea. So one peculiarity about the Reformation in the in the Low Countries that I make in the book, one that I note, is that the very heavy judicial backlash that it inspired, and and uh, something like three thousand people altogether uh, in the course of the 16th century were executed for heresy uh, in the Low Countries, which is far greater by several orders of magnitude than nearly anywhere else um, in Europe. Now, the question becomes, of course, what do these people believe? Well, there's a kind of biblicism. There is this notion of sola scriptura, uh, popularized as sola scriptura. Uh, there is a, a, a desire to see the introduction of biblical norms into church and life and into moral life. There is um, a questioning of the sacrament of the mass, like I showed you in the beginning of the slide, that is whether the Christ was actually physically present as, uh, as the Catholic Church taught, or whether in fact this was so much uh, mummery or whether there was a sort of symbolic presence of Christ in the mass. And, and, and the sacramentarianism of the, the, these early evangelicals in the low countries, it, it's, quite, it's quite prevalent. They, they have a lot of questions about whether, whether God is in that bread, shall we say, or, uh, or in that wine. So that's part of it. Now that's in the 1520s, and these are people. Most of the, most of them, the vast majority of them, are have no interest in creating a new church. Um, they just have questions. They are serious Christians. Um, they are interested in trying to uh, figure out how reform, reformatio, this notion of both internal and institutional reform, how that can be worked out. But they're they're not interested in. Uh, in being heretics, and most of them seem to have uh, reconciled them back to the church, especially when the, the judicial backlash uh, became, um, became more stringent. In the 1530s, however, things start to twist a little or, or ramp up a bit, and uh, what we see is the emergence by 1530 already of an Anabaptist movement that is of a, um, a, a more radical, if you will, um, uh, branch of religious protest. Um, now, I understand from my colleagues in, in Anabaptist history that, that they're starting to eschew the, the term radical because you know all Protestants were radical um, in uh, in the uh, in the the Reformation, and that is that that point is certainly well taken. I think what's radical for uh, this context, the Netherlands in the 1530s, is how much uh, these Anabaptists wanted to overturn. Uh, not just the church order, but but the social order as well. So, um, the kind of Anabaptism that became most prevalent in the Low Countries uh, was known as Melchiorite Anabaptism, uh, named after Melchior Hoffman, uh, the Swabian uh, furrier who became a, an Anabaptist prophet, mostly working in North Germany, and then uh, he settled in Strasbourg later. 
And his brand of Anabaptism, which, and, and this was a belief in a very literal Biblicism, that, that is uh, sola scriptura leading to a kind of very intentional concentration on how not just religious life should be organized along biblical norms, but uh, how social life and even political life should be ordered that way. And this, I think, is what makes the, uh, the Anabaptists radical. I mean, what's, what's most famous about them is, you know, the, the sort of umbrella characteristic is that they are, uh, they believe in adult baptism and believers baptism uh, rather than, and kind of overthrew centuries of tradition of ch children's baptism. In the 1530s, the Melchiorite Anabaptists were convinced the end of the world was coming, and they weren't alone in this necessarily, but uh, they famously take over the city of Münster uh, in northwest Germany in 1534 and 35, and a lot of those Melchiorite Anabaptists were, uh, were from the Netherlands, from the Low Countries. Um, in fact, at the same time that the, uh, the Melchiorites are taking over the city of Munster, they are also trying to stir up trouble in the city of Amsterdam. And there's the famous uh, Nacht Loperei, that is this famous running naked in the streets by several, uh, quite a few Anabaptists in Amsterdam in 1535, where the, these were people who, in a kind of religious ecstasy, threw off their, took off their clothes, threw them in a fire, denounced every material thing, and ran naked through the streets uh, of Amsterdam. And then more seriously, another group of Anabaptists uh, tried to take over the city government of Amsterdam. So it was clear, at least in the minds of authorities, that the Anabaptists were in uh, intent on revolution. And so when Münster finally falls in, in the summer of 1535, there is a tremendous judicial backlash uh, against uh, anyone who was seen as an Anabaptist or any sort of heretic uh, in the Low Countries, and I have a nice image here from the, probably from around 1540 of uh, Amsterdam, uh, of uh, two Anabaptists being hung for their beliefs, beliefs in Amsterdam. And again, a lot of the, the judicial backlash that I talked about, that heavy judicial uh, persecution of, of Protestants uh, fell, fell predominantly heavily on um, on the Anabaptist movement. Um, and it almost looked like the, ref, the, 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 the Inquisition, if you will, uh, succeeded in that um, uh, by say the early 1540s, things get a little quieter. The Anabaptists, um, well, either they scatter, they reconcile, uh, the, some of them uh, uh, end up joining more quietist pacifistic movements uh, like the Mennonites and uh, what are broadly known as the Dopchazinde uh, movements in the Low Countries. By the time we get to the mid-century, um, like the Habsburg, uh, the Habsburgs have achieved their their effort to to establish their sovereignty over the whole of the Low Countries. This this region. Uh, tucked between the empire and France. In the mid-century, Charles V uh, uh, abdicates, hands over power to his son, uh, Philip II, who is the King of Spain. And uh, Philip is intent on continuing the, the uh, policies of his father. Philip also believes that heresy um, is something that needs to be combated, um, that, that it's a, a, a mortal threat to the, the good order of society. 
um, it, you know, it's sort of the terrorism of the 16th century, as I like to tell students, which kind of shocks them. But you know, that's how that's how, in some ways, it was seen. Um, so the Habsburgs have been um, building, trying to build up their power. The the uh, the Inquisition or the 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 repression of heresy, the anti-heresy laws that they create, are also part of that effort to increase central power. And as a consequence, um, the, 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 the judicial regime, although it's fairly effective, at least until the early 1550s, it also causes a great deal of local resentment. Uh, the this, the, the, the uh, anti-heresy legislation flew in the face of a lot of local rights and local privileges and traditions, particularly the right of people to be tried in their own hometowns. Um, there was uh, confiscations of goods. So even though at least until the 1550s, um, this regime was e effective, um, it, it was very controversial. And it kind of added to the grievances that local nobles and uh, that uh, uh, local city governments had about what they saw as a kind of heavy handedness when it came to religious policy. And in the 1560s, that unease with Habsburg power or Habsburg policy will break out into open rebellion. Now, something else is happening at mid-century that I uh, talk about in the book, and that is um, the, the Reformation, if you will. And when I say Reformation, I should say I, I mean all religious change. Right? I, this is not a purely Protestant tr uh, story, but Reformation in the Low Countries takes what I call a confessional turn. By the 1560s, certainly, we can see sort of three streams, if you will, uh, three very broad streams of uh, reform uh, that are coalescing or taking shape in the Low Countries. Um, one is, of course, uh, the Anabaptists, who by, by certainly by the 1560s have, uh, or at least some of them have uh, morphed into Mennonite or baptism-minded Dobskazinda groups that are more interested, that have rejected the idea of revolution and have instead concentrated on internal reform and an interior piety. And Menno Simons, who is their great prophet and theologian, uh, developed a kind of theology uh, that, um, that eschews the idea of, of political or social revolution and instead argues that Christians should segregate themselves from the world, should not take oaths, should concentrate on their own interior uh, uh, improvement. So we have Mennonitism and Dobskazinda groups as sort of one stream, and, uh, and I, I, I'm, I'm simplifying greatly here because these, within these streams are lots of variations and complications. There's also an ongoing effort that's been going on actually since uh, the early 16th century at Catholic Reformation. Um, and the, the reform of the church, uh, uh, that is institutional reform, uh, the reorganization of the bishoprics uh, of the Low Countries, uh, the creation uh, uh, the, of, or the, the introduction, I should say, of the, um, the ideas uh, that di dictates the canons of the Council of Trent. Uh, in other words, there's an ongoing story of Catholic Reformation um, that is a subtext to this as well. And we can see, certainly by mid-century, 
um, that that Catholic reform is also a stream within the Low Countries. Um, it's the Habsburgs who, in fact, encourage Catholic Reformation quite a bit. They're the ones who force the reorganization of the bishoprics of the Low Countries in 1559. Um, and in these new bishoprics, the new bishops are supposed to do good things like uh, superintend their priests more. They are supposed to um, take care of heresy. They're supposed to create seminaries for their priests. In other words, Catholic Reformation is this ongoing thing. And then finally, there's a third stream, and that's the Reformed. That is what is popularly but not very accurately known as Calvinism. Uh, and I say that with all due apologies to the Meter Center of Calvin Studies, um, that the Reformed Protestantism, ideas uh, that, that first arose uh, with Zwingli, uh, later with Calvin, with the, in the Swiss cities, by the 15, certainly by 1560, reformed Protestantism has become the third stream. Um, Calvin, as you know, uh, Geneva have been sending out missionaries into France and many of those French missionaries, the Huguenot movement uh, starts to have its effect on an influence on certainly in the Francophone low countries, Tournai, uh, Valenciennes, these, these Lille, these southern cities became hotbeds of, uh, of the reform movement in the 1560s, also the far south southwest of Flanders, Ypres. And by the time we get to the 1560s, places like Antwerp and Ghent and Bruges, the major cities of Brabant and Flanders, have substantial reformed congregations. So, um, and these groups are rather aggressive in terms of, of uh, what they want. They start sta staging various sorts of actions. They, they free uh, people accused of heresy from prison. Um, they stage what were called chantari, that uh, they, they went around singing psalms openly in, the pu in public. Um, all sorts of sort of interesting little kind of symbolic actions took place. And by the time we get to 1565, um, it's clear that the Reformed Protestants are, are troubled, at least from the eyes of the, in the eyes of the Habsburg authorities. Um, they are militant. They have a very clear sense of their organization and of their desires. They are very, very anti-Catholic and they're, they're fairly brazen. They, um, they, are, they are supported in part by congregations in, in, in England and in Germany and they are, they are on the march. And which, of course, means that the, the, the anti-heresy legislation will be applied to them that much more fiercely. Well, things come to a head and um, in 1566, part of the nobility of the Low Countries, which was mo the, the, no the part that was most closely allied with the reform movement, protests uh, against uh, against the Habsburg government. This is the famous compromise of the nobility where uh, the gentry come in and, and protest basically the Inquisition. Right? That is their initial protest is that the Inquisition, and they never, they never talk about heresy, they never talk about Protestant ideas, they just say the Inquisition is ruining the country. Right? So the spark of opposition is lit by, uh, by religious policy. And this in turn emboldens the reformed who start meeting openly uh, in what were called the hedge preachings. This is a nice uh, image of that. Here is the city of Antwerp along the river Scheldt. And over here in the corner, you can see a whole bunch of people listening to a preacher out in the countryside. 
And these hedge preachings, as they were called, became very popular where reformed ministers uh, preached their ideas. And eventually things get even more ramped up. And in the, the summer and fall of 1566, we have an outbreak of what was known as the Baldenstorm or the iconoclastic fury that over about an eight week period uh, saw mobs of Protestants uh, attacking churches. Right? This is a famous uh, Franz Hochenberg depiction after the event, uh, supposed to be the cathedral in Antwerp. And it depicts the, um, it depicts these mobs pulling down statues, breaking stained glass windows, um, all while people look on and, and the civic militia seems to do uh, nothing. Uh, and so um, uh, this, this iconoclastic outbreak in turn, of course, causes still more um, uh, reaction by the Habsburg government. And famously, as you, I'm sure you've all heard, Philip II sends the Duke of Alba to set up a military regime. Uh, he, uh, Alba in turn, is get empowered to set up the Council of Troubles, which is designed to root out and punish sedition and, oh, by consequence, heresy. Right. So a, a military regime gets set up. And the opposition, which by this time is led by the nobility and is personified, of course, by William of Orange, uh, the opposition, the political opposition to the Habsburg government um, is forced into exile, and so is the religious opposition. And it's in exile that the um, political rebels, who are mostly um, either civic magistrates or nobles, and the um, religious dissidents, mostly the reformed uh, Protestants, form a rather uneasy alliance with each other against, uh, against the Habsburg government. Um, and from the point of view of the Habsburg government, uh, this, this um, alliance, uh, if you will, the rebel alliance, um, is deeply troubling, um, is dangerous. Uh, I found this, um, this image here, it's a, the, an allegory of the ship of state and church, and it's supposed to depict um, the Habsburg government of the Low Countries navigating the ship of state through all sorts of treacherous waters, right? The waters full of heresy, and, and of course, instead it's giants and mermaids and that sort of thing. And um, in the, if you look at a close-up uh, of the image, this is supposed to be Philip II, the King of Spain. This is supposed to be the Duke of Alba. In other words, um, uh, the, from the Habsburg point of view, this is a dangerous revolutionary um, um, radical movement that is usurping authority. It's seditious in addition to being heretical. And so the fourth chapter of my book talks about the wars. Uh, you know, the, the, rev the revolt, what was called the revolt of the Netherlands or more, uh, 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 more traditionally the 80 years war. And my book isn't really so much about that revolt per se, except this chapter talks about how religiously informed that rebellion, those wars were, because sometimes it was a rebellion, sometimes it was civil war, sometimes it was um, a, um, uh, a religious war, a confessional one. And I won't go, you know, bore you with all the details of that war. There are lots of good books about, about that subject. The upshot is, is that by the end of the 16th century, the wars, the revolt of the Netherlands, the 80 years war, the wars had created effectively two states. In the north, 
the rebels led by William of Orange uh, were able to gain territory in Holland, Zeeland, uh, parts of, of Brabant and Flanders. And the, they held on to these, these territories starting in 1572 um, and eventually uh, were able to fashion a state uh, from these uh, from these uh, uh, territories. They tried hard to conquer the rest. They didn't, that didn't work. Uh, and the Habsburgs in turn tried hard to reconquer the North uh, for their dynasty and that didn't work. And so the upshot is that by say the 1580s and 1590s, there's this military frontier between an insurgent independent North and a Habsburg South. And of course, if you know your maps at all, you can see that there, this is, this is, these are incipient uh, versions of what will later become the Netherlands um, and Belgium. But you know, no one knows that at the time. One of the, th another aspect of the Reformation in the Low Countries that I think is significant is that it's the only religious war in Europe, you know, insofar as that those revol that revolt was a religious war, but it's the only time where religious war in the 16th century actually changes the political map. That is, it results in the creation of what will become an entirely new state. Uh, and that becomes known as the Dutch Republic or the United Provinces. And the South, the Southern Netherlands or what's sometimes referred to as the Archducal Netherlands um, continues to remain under Habsburg control. Right? So that by the 1600s, what we have is the creation of a new state, a different map of bifurcated low countries. And reformation continues in both of those places, but under rather different guises. In the Southern Netherlands or the Archducal Netherlands, uh, what's sometimes rather inaccurately referred to as the Spanish Netherlands. Um, in the Southern Netherlands, Catholic Reformation continues, or if anything gets restarted after the up upheavals of the wars. And what happens is that the Southern Netherlands or the Archducal Netherlands, and then I call, that, call them that because they were ruled by uh, the Archdukes, Albert and uh, Isabella, and they're, they're here in this little, um, in this image of a, of a religious procession in Brussels. The Archducal Netherlands very conscientiously embarked on a program of re-Catholicization. That is, they, the Habsburg government there tied re rebuilding the Catholic Church, reforming the Catholic Church very much to their dynastic authority. And what ends up happening, as I'm sure many of you know, is that there is a massive migration, out-migration from the Southern Netherlands um, to the north in some, some cases, but also into Germany and England of many, many people, about 150,000 is the best estimate. And the, that 150,000, most of them were Protestant, not necessarily all, they might've been economic refugees as well as religious ones. But it depopulates the Protestant um, community in the South. In other words, Protestantism in the Low Countries, its heartlands, its homes were the South. Right, Flanders and Brabant. And it's only later in the late 17th, 16th century that it migrates north. Right. Now, so the Southern Netherlands, the Archducal Netherlands is very much a 
Catholic confessional state. It rebuilds churches. It brings in new religious orders like the Society of Jesus. It continues that work of reformation. So Catholic reformation, in a sense, continues um, in the South. The North, however, that what becomes the Dutch Republic or the um, uh, uh, the United Provinces. That's another story. Their reformation um, is rather more complicated because the relationship in the Dutch Republic between the, the, the principal church and the government is, um, is uh, well ambivalent, right? Whereas the archducal government of the South wholeheartedly embraced the Catholic church and supported a policy of re-Catholicization, in the Dutch Republic, well, yeah, there is this privileged church. There is one legal church, the Reformed Church, the Dutch Reformed Church, but no one is forced to join it. And the political leaders of the of the of the Dutch Republic, who are all um, urban, mostly urban oligarchs, urban patricians, uh, they say no one has to join this church. But yet, this church still has to welcome anyone who wants to get married in it, who wants to be baptized in it. So we have a reformed church, a church set up along um, reformed models coming out of France and Geneva, um, a very a distinctly reformed polity, if you will. But that church is actually, although it's privileged, it's the only church that has the right to worship publicly. It's the church that you're supposed to go to on national days of prayer. It's the church that provides the chaplains for the armed forces. It's the privileged church of the Dutch Republic, but it's not a state church because no one is required to join it. And at the same time, the Reformed Church itself insisted that if you wanted to join the church, you actually had to undergo a fairly rigorous examination and submit yourself to discipline. And so the result is that in the Dutch Republic, which is a nominally Protestant or Reformed state, the public church, the only church that's allowed to worship openly, probably comprises at most a plurality rather than a majority of the population, at least in the beginning of the 17th century. And what was everyone else doing? Well, everyone who wasn't reformed, uh, well, they might go to that church, but they wouldn't become members. They might be Lutherans because there's a substantial Lutheran community that, that sets itself up in Amsterdam. Uh, they might be Mennonites or Dokuzin. They might even still be Catholic. There's a substantial Catholic minority um, in the Dutch Republic throughout this period. Right? So what you get is a public church and a state that at least on its facade is reformed or Calvinist, but in reality is demographically very, very mixed. It's multi-confessional. Uh, and so in some ways, the, what, what, the reformation that occurs in the Dutch Republic, the continuation of reformation in the Dutch Republic is kind of a, um, it's kind of a, a continuation of that very eclectic a reformation of the early 1520s where people kind of took things that interested them and ignored the rest. And so you had, uh, and, and Jo Spans, who's, uh, who's here in the audience knows well that, you know, that, that there seemed to be a whole lot of people who just didn't go to any kind of church at all, who were unchurched, shall we say. Um, and yet there were all these private beliefs. Um, there were freedom of conscience was the law of the land. So in your heart of hearts, you could be a Catholic or a Mennonite or a Lutheran. 
you weren't allowed to express that publicly, but even that is um, um, a kind of a polite fiction, as Ben Kaplan has shown, that, that there is there is a kind of sense of, well, as long as people don't make trouble, they can worship in, in their homes as much as they like. Uh, but that, again, that's a very um, uh, contingent uh, and expedient kind of, uh, uh, of arrangement. It's, it's uh, I hesitate to call it an ecclesiastical settlement. It's more like a big ad hoc arrangement where the authorities say, well, if you're a Catholic or you're a Lutheran or you're a Mennonite, uh, you're Jewish. There's a Jewish community, of course, that, that comes in the 17th century. Um, as long as you are quiet about it, we won't make too much trouble. But it's it's a toleration, and, and I mean toleration in the sort of 17th century sense, sense of suffering or allowing. It's a contingent toleration. Um, I, I, I borrowed a phrase from the political philosopher Michael Walzer to describe this as a regime of toleration. Um, it's a managed toleration. That is, the government keeps an eye on all of the different religious bodies, and, and this is primarily local government that's doing this. Local governments keep an eye and manage religious coexistence. And whenever anyone gets out of hand, if there's trouble, uh, uh, and again, this is varies greatly from, from time and place, uh, the, the authorities might step in and suppress worship, arrest a Catholic priest, for example, or fine a congregation uh, that is that is uh, that uh, in order to uh, be to pay it to pay a bribe essentially to be tolerated. So what we have is in the southern Netherlands, we have effectively a Catholic confessional state. And in the Dutch Republic, the Northern Netherlands, we have, well, yeah, it's, it's a Protestant country, sort of, uh, but it's a regime of toleration. And it's a regime that is very bumpy. It's, um, it's like I said, it's, it's not neat and tidy and unified the way in the way that uh, the, the, the Catholic South uh, uh, tried to be. And one of the things I suggest in my book is that one could argue that Reformation in the South was much more successful than it was in the North. That is, if you take it on its own terms, the re-Catholicization, Catholic Reformation in the Southern Netherlands actually worked quite well, uh, created a, a fairly uh, uniformly Catholic state with you know, small marginalized groups of, of Protestants. In the North, Reformation is much messier. Right. Um, you know, as much as the Reformed Church would have liked to have seen a further reformation uh, of the all of Dutch society, um, they um, they did not get that, and they were forced to be the public church in a society that was, in fact, quite multi-confessional. And arguably, one you know, if taken on their own terms, the, this Reformation, this Catholic Reformation of the South, in some ways, was uh, much more successful, or at least more enduring, uh, than the very complicated, messy Reformation in the North. So anyway, my intent uh, in writing this book, and I go to 1620 because uh, 1620 is when we have uh, the famous Synod of Dordrecht, where the Reformed Church in the Dutch Republic establishes its orthodoxy once and for all. Um, 1621 is also the year that the Archduke Albert dies in the Southern Netherlands. So I had to stop because at a certain point, um, I felt like this was becoming two narratives instead of one. That is Reformation in the Low Countries, certainly by 1620, has become two stories. 
uh, and you know life is short and I didn't want to write all that as well so um, I, um, I I chose to end the the um, the narrative at 1620 and my goal in doing this was to I, I've had a lot of colleagues in early modern European history ask me for a reference for a, 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 a good um, overview of it and it's been a real hole in the literature uh, that that there hasn't been so this is my attempt um, I wrote it particularly with, with non-specialists in mind um, and, and I've tried to um, encapsulate and and put together what's uh, you know the year the the work of hundreds of scholars right? some of whom I have known personally um, others of whom are were giants in the field uh, but it's an attempt at synthesis right? and in particular my focus is on how the politics of the low countries in the 16th century affect religious change and vice versa that is how uh, politics in turn are driven and influenced by uh, reformation as well so thank you for your attention that is um that is it in a very quick nutshell um, and i look forward to uh, hearing your thoughts and your comments so thank you again for your attention thank you so much uh, christine that was that was great keep the headphones on i think because you'll probably yeah. need them yet um, so what I would say at this point is I just have a couple of questions which I'd like to, to get to. And mm -hmm. my first one really is what would you describe if you had to sort of summarize the challenges of writing this particular <laughs> study? Obviously writing every book has challenges, yeah. but this particular study, what would you say? Um, I think the biggest challenge is that this is a very hard part of the world to generalize about. Um, it's the size of Scotland, it's got maybe 3 million people in the 16th century, and yet is it absurdly diverse. And it's very atomized, and I, and I say in the conclusion of the book, for every generalization I could make about the Low Countries, the Reformation in the Low Countries, I can find five exceptions. Mm -hmm. So part of it, I think for me the biggest challenge was my awareness that I, I was that like all narratives, this is artificial, right? that, that it's a construction, um, that I, it's, it's hard to take into account just how diverse, uh, you know, what, what happens in, it, you know, there's very, barely any reformation in the Duchy of Luxembourg except Catholic reform, and yet Friesland is full of Mennonites. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so to take account for that, of that diversity, which is what scholars have been concentrating on in, in the literature for the last 50 years, just the extreme diversity of experience. Um, but my goal was, well, how do we, how do you summarize diversity? How do you encapsulate it? Are there big lines to be mm -hmm. seen, to be described? And, and I, I'm, so I'm trying to create a kind of, like I said, a constructive narrative, um, but this is my attempt. Let's put it that yeah. way. But I will say accounting for locality, particularism, diversity, that that was the biggest challenge conceptually. And I can imagine that's maybe one of the reasons why there haven't been too many this one is why, volume yeah, texts this written is, about it, right? Al Alistair Duke told me a few years ago he'd tried to do this and he gave up. And I, I kind of understand why. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a very complicated story. So. The other question I had as you went along was, did you find themes or topics or areas that you felt were really understudied in other words where more research needs to be done 
as as you went along? Were there like yeah. holes in the research along the way? The the hole that struck me the most is um, what happens in the francophone part of the Lone Countries, Wallonia, um, after the 1560s. Um, there's been great work done by Belgian scholars in particular about uh, the Reformation, you know, what, what the religious change and religious culture in Flanders and Brabant in the 17th century. Um, great counter-reformation, Catholic reform stuff, but it's all in the Flemish-speaking parts, and I'm hard-pressed to find anyone who has written extensively about Liège, uh, Namur, uh, there are a couple of, uh, there's one or two studies of Lille as a center of the Counter-Reformation, but that I find that that, I, I don't know if it's the, the Walloon historians are not interested in it, but um, uh, there's a lot more on the Dutch-speaking part of Belgium, its religious history, than, than um, on the French. So that to me was the biggest, uh, I mean, there I, I, I thought surely someone would have written more, uh, people would have written more, but uh, I, maybe it doesn't interest those scholars, I don't know. So. It's, it's, it's really fascinating what grabs people's interests, right? So we're getting questions now on the chat, so I'm going to okay. work through some of them. The first one um, is, this is a great and needed overview. Were there also new insights? So new insights. I hesitate to make that claim. I think what mm -hmm. I told someone the other day was, I feel like the framework is what's most novel about this book. That is the presentation of it. Um, honestly, no one has tried to do a monograph, a, a summary of this length uh, in, in many, many years, many decades. Um, and so I'm not sure, I, I don't necessarily have new insights. What I'm trying to do is summarize and synthesize some of my research, yes, but mostly the work of other scholars. Um, <laughs> And I'm not, I'm not sure there's new, there's not a new thesis in it necessarily. It's more a presentation of the work of a whole lot of other people. Yep. Um, so I will not make any claim that of novelty, except that I made the attempt to kind of tie it up in a package. Uh, mm -hmm. And, you know, not everyone's going to be convinced by that package. And, and uh, boy, I invite you to take a crack at it because it only took me 10 years. So, uh, uh, it, so that it's, um, I think it's more the you know the framework that I'm giving it that it's like here here is an account here's a way to th understand reformation in the low countries the totality of the low countries all types of religious change not just protestant um, yeah. um, and to and to kind of build up on all the fine work all sorts of early modern scholars have done on 16th and 17th century uh european history so yeah i think seeing these these side-by-side -side experiences, I think, is actually mm -hmm. not done by others. And that's where it can be very, very fruitful and very encouraging. Mm -hmm. So um, a couple more questions that have come sure. in. So a question from our student, Sam Ha. Mm -hmm. He says, my question has to do with the Marian exiles. As far as I understand, some of them went to the Low Countries between 53 and 58. Did they have any impact on the Reformation in the Low Countries? Or was their influence minimal compared to the one they had in places like Geneva or Frankfurt, possibly because they were such a small group? And is there signs of Protestantism of the Netherlands influencing the Marian exiles at all? Any thoughts? Oh, okay. Well, uh, yeah, you know, I, uh, 
the Mary, the Marian exiles are not in the Low Countries that long. I, yeah, I think they have more influence in Germany, Sam. I think you're right. I mean, and um, if anything, I think the opposite is true. It seems to me, especially after 1558, when you know Elizabeth comes in and the the Dutch stranger churches are restored, the French stranger churches are restored that that the the influence goes in the opposite direction that that uh, you know a lot of the in the 1560s a lot of the reformed radicals of the 1560s get a lot of help and support from uh churches in sandwich and norwich um uh and as well as uh the um the the rhenish the you know the the the, the congregations in the rhineland and the palatinate as well so i think if anything yeah. it works the other way it's more england to the low countries and and I'm th those Marian exiles aren't there all that long. So, so a question from Lyle Birma: mm -hmm. Did the Reformed in the Low Countries in the 1560s sense any contradiction between their criticism of the anarchistic behavior of the Anabaptists, for instance, mm. see the Belgian Confession of 1561, and their own iconoclastic behavior in 1566? Oh yes, yes. There's the 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 iconoclastic fury was very controversial. There were uh, uh, Guy de Bray, who was the author of the Belgic uh, Confession, distanced himself from it. A lot of Reformed divines leaders uh, denounced it as um, uh, as you know destructive anarchic behavior. Uh, opinion about that was very mixed, and and of course the 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 iconoclasm itself was highly varied. Sometimes it was organized mobs directed by a, a particular preacher. Sometimes it was spontaneous. Um, but at least initially, um, after it was kind of over, or while it was happening and after it was over, most responsible, you know, le reformed leaders denounced it as violence. Um, mm -hmm. But only later, you know, when when the Council of Troubles gets set up and there's a military regime, um, then there are efforts by people like uh, Philip Marnix of St. Aldegonde, a reformed noble, to try and justify the violence after the fact. That is, that, that the reformed were so oppressed that they were driven to act out this way. But there was no, no, no it, at least initially, the, the reformed, you know, reformed leadership tried to step away from the violence. So a question from Robert Teeks. Um, is there anything you found interesting or worthwhile, but just could not find a way to work into the book? <laughs> oh, so much. Um, <laughs> I wish I could have done more about material culture. Um, I think there's a very, and, and Andrew Spicer, where are you? you, you you're, the, you're the expert on this. Um, I think there's more to be done on the, um, on the material culture aspect of it. The, the, the the you know the the reset you know the destruction of the, the of the iconoclasm for example that we just talked about but also the the reconstruction of churches um, if I'd had more time I think I might have tried to devote more uh, more attention to how the, the the church landscape or the religious landscape in some ways changes the material aspects of, of religiosity. Um, I, I the, the people are working on that, and and I think there's there are very interesting things to be said about that. A mm -hmm. uh, question from Catherine French: In what ways was the urban experience of Reformed, Catholic, and Protestant similar, because of the organization and priorities of cities versus the countryside? Hmm. Oh boy, good question. Um, well, I will say that it's it's in cities where you see reform happening most intensely, whether it's Catholic or Protestant. Um, 
what's interesting is, uh, for example, when after the you know, after the 1580s, when we're when we're in in a period of having effectively two states, you see some of the same echoes of um, local urban resistance to the church's attempt to impose certain types of norms of behavior. Right, so that um, there are cases of you know bishops, uh, the bishop of uh, of Bruges, for example, the bishop of Kent, uh, trying to impose fines on people so that they will go to mass regularly and and uh, act like good Catholics. And some city governments resist those impositions. They say there's still enough of a Protestant minority in our population that we don't want to ruffle feathers and cause trouble. Um, and you see something similar going on in uh, in the Dutch Republic in the sense that their city governments, uh, who are the real powers of, of, uh, of that state, um, city governments contain reformed efforts at reforming everyone to just reform churches, reform congregations. In other words, um, they're not going to let the reformed church change society as a whole. Instead, ecclesiastical discipline will only be uh, um, uh, uh, will only pertain to co the congregations, right? So that, you know, so there's, and then later in the 17th century, there are debates in the Dutch Republic about Sabbath observance and that sort of thing. And it's clear that the reformed are constantly stymied by local authorities, uh, local civic authorities in their efforts to, to try and Protestantize everything. In the same way, it's local authorities who allow this, this connivance, this toleration of religious minorities, even though the Reformed would like to see all those religious minorities kind of done away with, shall we say, or, or, or um, con controlled more. So yeah, there are similarities. That, that same kind of urban particularism, um, we see, you see parallels between the two. So. Mm -hmm. A question from Randy Blackader. How does your methodology or framework differ from the study of Alastair Duke's Reformation and Revolt in the Low Countries 2003? Uh, uh, well, um, Alistair is a fine-grained historian. Let me put it that way. He, he digs into archives. He, I think he, and he is a far, far more adept historian than I am in terms of uh, uh, just uh, mining from archives uh, uh, what uh, what we know about that, especially about the early Reformation in the Low Countries. Um, my approach, like I said, has been synthetic. I'm I'm borrowing heavily from Alistair uh, and from a whole bunch of other people, whom I have tried to acknowledge in all my many footnotes. Um, that um, that I'm building on that work, um, and I'm trying. Uh, I, 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 I think Alistair's insights are actually quite good ones and I, I rely on them heavily. So I wouldn't say necessarily that um, uh, uh, that my, my approach is all that different except that mine is a work of synthesis based on secondary literature. Uh, mm -hmm. Whereas of course Alistair has you know, spent years in Brussels and The Hague uh, in, in archives, um, mining those archives very, very effectively. And, and I feel like I'm the happy beneficiary of that. So. Mm -hmm. um, the questions keep coming, <laughs> thick and fast. So uh, Janice Gibbs, uh, do you get a sense of why the northern part of the Low Countries developed their regime of toleration? I think you said something about yeah, that. Yeah, there, there's, there's a lot of discussion about that. Um, you know, there's the pecuniary motive of if you allow a regime of toleration, you don't have to... Um, 
you know, you, you let people do their own thing and you attract people from all over the world and you attract, uh, you know, a cosmopolitan populace that will help your economy, right? So on one level, it's a very base uh, material incentive. But I think also the, it's the harshness of that judicial apparatus that the Habsburgs first imposed in already starting in the 1520s. Uh, that led the, the the leaders of the Dutch Republic to, you know, these are oligarchs to conclude that it doesn't work, that imposing mm -hmm. conformity doesn't work very well. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's, you know, I, I don't want, I, they, they talk about freedom of conscience, conscience, and so in some ways it's a principled ideology, but in many other respects, it's just this very ad hoc, we'll make it up as we go along religious settlement. Right. And it's it's a religious it's so it's messy. It's not it. There's lots of there's lots of, um, you know, incidents of judicial suppression still of of Catholics, uh, Lutherans in the 1590s in, in the Dutch Republic. So um, I hesitate to make it more ideological than it is. I think it was it was more practical and may, perhaps the the you know, the fruit of political experience. Yeah. But, you know, there's no one document that would tell me that. I wish there were, <laughs> but, but there isn't. So. Uh, question from Preston Hill. Have you encountered any doctrinal debates to do with soul sleep playing a role in the Reformation in the Low Countries, perhaps in Anabaptist strands? Yeah, you know, I think if you look at maybe the family of love, um, there are, you know, these these sort of spiritualist groups uh, in the margins uh, uh, within the radical stream of the Reformation in the Low Countries, who uh, David Joris, David Joris, who is this mystic and, and um, uh, from Delft, who eventually winds up in Basel, and he has a following for a while. There might be discussion of that there, uh, but um, but it's certainly you're not going to find much of it among the mainstream, among you know the Catholic or Reform strain strains of. of religious descent so mm -hmm. no not i think maybe in the deeper depths of of spiritualist theology here and there you might find it but um um not not on on, in a, on any sort of level that was very prevalent another question sort of on the more theological side from jan clock if i have understood correctly the sola scriptura principle which is primarily a hermeneutical principle is also applied to the anabaptist movement and especially in the way in which they want to shape Christian life in social practice and politics. My question is this, is this striving of the Anabaptists not, oops, sorry, lost it. <laughs> it disappeared uh, on me again. Let me see, yeah. Not more to be considered and interpreted from a different perspective than the sola scriptura principle, namely the theocratic ideal. Scripture does of course play a role in this, but not in a hermeneutical sense. Mm -hmm. Sure, yeah, I wouldn't argue with that. I, I think at least among the Melchiorite Anabaptists of the 1530s, the most ap apocalyptic bunch, uh, there was certainly a, a belief uh, uh, that, that, um, uh, that the kingdom of God was at hand and we should do all we can to uh, usher it in. Um, that is certainly true, I think, in the 1530s. You know, Melchior Hoffman is, is styling himself a prophet, and he thinks the world is going to end in 1533, and that sort of thing. So, yeah, and Munster is a, is a very um, um, messy attempt at create, recreating or creating that theocratic ideal. It doesn't work very well. Um, however, I think also that this sola scriptura has a role to play. In other words, there there's all the, these movements that later become known, you know, get... get uh, 
lumped together under this label Protestant, they all have a, a, a biblicism in common. Right now, the degree of biblicism, that is, how far do we go in, in applying biblical norms to, or what we understand biblical norms to be, to everyday life or to the life of the church, I think that varies among, among uh, uh, groups. But I, I would not dismiss, uh, I mean, to me, uh, the, 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 there, is a, there is an element, certainly, especially after Munster, um, when you get to Mennonitism and the Dopskazinda, that, that, yeah, it's, this, is, this is, what does the Bible tell us about how to be a good Christian? Right. Um, and it may not be theocratic. It may be more, you know, interior piety and how we reform ourselves rather than we reform society. Uh, but I think I think the the biblicism plays a role in that. So. Okay. Uh, from Elise Watson, thank you so much for a fantastic presentation. How do you see those who lived in various parts of the Low Countries identifying themselves over the course of these changes? Was there any sense of pan the Low Countries identity? outside of identification with city or province? And if so, did this change throughout the 16th and 17th century? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, and uh, lots, lots has been written about this too, whether there's any sense of national identity. Um, I think in the 16th century, people identify themselves locally. They, they, they you know, the, you know, among a few intellectuals here and there, there might be a sense of a, a, a Belgia or Belgica or the the uh, the larger Low Countries. Um, and in the 17th century, there are, of course, there are uh, people on both sides of the border, the military frontier, who would like to see, <clears throat> excuse me, the whole of the Low Countries, the Habsburg Low Countries, reconquered, either for Protestantism or Catholicism. Um, but, you know, I find that evocations of a, a larger Netherland identity is primarily confined to propaganda, uh, to print, mm -hmm. uh, and not so much among ordinary peoples. There's, there are references to patria and that sort of thing. Um, but no, I mean, and, and you know, when I talk in this book, I talk about the Habsburg Low Countries, and I don't want to overstate the case. I mean, it's it's a composite monarchy. It's it's uh, still scattered and atomized and decentralized, um, even when the Habsburgs, you know, assemble a fair amount of territory. I mean, even even in after 1585, when you have the, the Catholic Netherlands, it's still a fairly atomized uh, polity. So. I don't see much of it beyond in the realm of sort of discussions among intellectuals and humanists. So. Yep, good. Okay, last two questions. One from Sabine. I have a question about the methodology. If you're summarizing existing research without going back to sources, how do you make your analysis? Well, uh, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, it's, I think I, I started out by reading a lot of this stuff and then basically concentrating on what struck out to me uh, over and over again in the literature. Um, uh, I, I, I'm, this was an attempt to synthesize uh, a lot of other people's work. And so I read through a lot of it and it only slowly did I figure out that some of the same themes were coming up again, whether it was urbanization, uh, whether it was the political um, uh, uh, evolution of the Low Countries in the 16th century. Um, it's, a lot of it is picking and choosing. Right? 
and um, and I will I will be frank about that. I think to me, um, it's it's the political environment of the Low Countries that is the most um, um, definitive in terms of how influencing how uh, Reformation occurred. But I, you know, an equally an equally valid case could could be made perhaps for social or economic circumstances as well. But also, I wanted to write this book, like I said, for non specialists and and for people who may have a kind of nominal acquaintance with with major developments. But also, my goal was to to talk about this in the light of all the great work that's been done by Reformation historians more generally. Uh, You know, so, you know, things like early modern Catholicism and you know, how does confessionalization fit into this model uh, and that sort of thing. So, um, so my analysis is kind of informed by how the, how I understand the whole literature, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people mm-hmm. will either like it or not and disagree with it or not, but um, this was an attempt and this is kind of what I found to be most, uh, most congenial. And the last question, how do you see the role of the Stadthouders in the Reformation in the North? Many European Reformations are princes' reformations. For the Netherlands, the focus seems to lie on urban magistracies, but what about the House of Orange and the high nobility more generally? Yeah, there's no princely Reformation in the Low Countries, although one could make the argument that um, Catholic reform in the 16th century, which was very much directed by the Habsburg dynasty, uh, or, or directed, it was it was encouraged and 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 to a certain extent um, uh, conducted by the Habsburg dynasty. One could make a sense uh, a case for princely reformation there. Um, now the House of Orange. Well, the House of Orange in the 17th century, of course, becomes associated with the Reformed Church, uh, partly because Maurice of Nassau takes sides in the in the controversy over the Arminians. Um, but that's kind of a later cultural phenomenon. Um, it, it's not really happening necessarily yet in, in the period I, I, uh, I talk about. Certainly by the 16-teens and 20s, um, yeah, the, the Reformed Church is, has kind of rehabilitated William of Orange into a, a Calvinist prince, uh, which he was not quite. Uh, but um, um, on the role, you know, the, the, and the stadtholders don't have that much power in the Dutch Republic. I mean, they, they, they have influence and they have authority and they run the, gov- they run the army, uh, at least through um, uh, the 1620s. But I, 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 I would not say there's a princely reformation. Okay. Wow. Well, we have covered a lot of ground here. Christine, thank you so much. This yeah. has been a lot of fun. I think we've really enjoyed the opportunity to hear from you and to really see the themes of this book come out. Congratulations on this project. Mm-hmm. And uh, we look forward to seeing it in print. Hopefully, what, you think maybe later in... Next year, I hope. Next year. We'll go for next year. That'll be really good. Let's, uh, let's say that. So. All right. And for <laughs> everyone right. who's interested, we should have another presentation from Visiting Scholar. This would be on August 5. So keep watching your inboxes for news about the next one. All right. Thank you very much, everybody. Thank, Thank you, you, everyone. Have a wonderful evening. Appreciate it. Bye now. <laughs>